morning to you all. Right, welcome Palm Sunday. An important date in the um, traditional Christian calendar. And before we start, just going to have a word of prayer and then on with our message. Loving Father, give you thanks once more for another day, another Palm Sunday. As grandmother used to say, days never promised to us. It is a privilege, it's a blessing, and we should honor it and receive it as such. I just pray, Lord, that as come before you now and you open your word to us, I just pray, Lord, that you make our heart receptive, our minds attentive to hear from you, hear what it is that you would have your people to understand, to appreciate, and to live out in their calling before you. And so, Lord, lead and direct by the power of your spirit, as I ask in Jesus' name. Amen. So, topic for today, title, right? Palm Sunday. What will you shout? Hosanna or crucify him? Let me take you back to an very momentous event which took place when I was a nine-year-old child in Jamaica. This was 1966. I don't think any of you, perhaps even your parents had met there, let alone <laughs> were born. But on this particular day in 1966, the whole of Kingston, my you know, um, hometown, came to a standstill. Kingston is the most densely populated part of Jamaica. Right? And as you perhaps know, um, the most volatile. But yet on this particular day, the whole of Kingston practically and most of Jamaica came to a standstill. You're perhaps wondering, why? How is that possible? Well, the reason being, visits from Ethiopia by Emperor Haile Selassie. Because we had grown up hearing about um, this emperor. And our Rastafarian compatriots had told us that this man was divine and therefore. So everybody, including myself as a nine-year-old, I had a bird's eye view because climbed up on a roof to get a view as, you know, he passed along yeah, in an open here van standing next to the governor general. And until that date, I did not realize there was that many Rastafarians in Jamaica. <laughs> right? Yes, it's like all of them descended to come and see um, Ali Selassie um, visit to Jamaica. Yet, Ali Selassie's visit to Jamaica as spectacular as it was, pale into insignificance, right? To when, right, the King of Kings, right, the true King of Kings, the true Lord of Lords, right, entered Jerusalem on Palm Sunday. Jesus, right, wants to share his eternal victory with you and me, right? So could we first start by reading that account in Mark of the triumphant entry. Mark chapter 11, verse 1 to 10. Now when they drew near to Jerusalem, the Bethphage and Bethany, at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples and said to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately as you enter it, you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it. If anyone say to you, why are you doing this? Say, the Lord has need of it and will send it back here immediately. And they went away and found a cold tied at a door outside in the street. And they untied it. 
And some of those standing there said to them, What are you doing untying the colt? And they told them what Jesus had said. And they let them go. And they brought it. Yeah, thanks. And they brought the colt to Jesus and threw it, threw their cloaks on it, and he sat on it. And many spread their cloaks on the road, and others spread leafy branches that they had cut from the fields. And those who were before and those who were and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father, David. Hosanna in the highest. Amen? Amen. So as I said, Jesus wants to share his eternal victory with you and me. And an event that occurred on Palm Sunday in Jerusalem illustrates this. It was the festive season of Passover. Jerusalem, right, we see an illustration, was filled with pilgrims, visitors, and travelers who had come from many countries across the Jewish diaspora to share in Passover. An exciting rumor had spread throughout the city. Jesus is coming. Behind him were his sermons and parables. Ahead, his suffering. Behind him were his miracles. Ahead, his cross. Behind him were his meals of fellowship. Ahead, his last supper of betrayal. Behind him, the delights of Galilee. Ahead, fearful Gethsemane. Prophecy was now to be fulfilled. A mental walk through the event should help us in making an application of the great truths revealed on the day. Jesus had spent the night at the home of friends in Bethany. That is most like Mary, Martha, and Lazarus, who we had you know, resurrected from the dead. Bethany was like the opposite side, you know. So this picture is kind of giving you a sense of where Bethany is in relationship to the city. Yeah, it was on the opposite side of the Mount of Olives from Jerusalem. It was approximately about five miles that separated Bethany from Jerusalem. I mean, many of you probably seen films of Jesus, you know, being on the donkey. And you think it's a short ride from maybe the start of the walkway here to where the swimming pool is. Not so at all. It was about approximately several miles at least. Yeah, that was the length of that ride on that donkey. And I can tell you, if you've ever been on a donkey, it's not comfortable. It's not like a horse. It is. <laughs> I, I, I remembered going on a donkey uh, for about a three-mile journey in Jamaica, and it was very uncomfortable. So it was not a comfortable ride, I'm sure, even for our Lord and Savior. Historians tell us that traditionally, persons from various regions who are their special area, as they get it for Passover, they had a special area um, that they would sit, locate. They would sit in, you know, their own kind of what you could say towns. Not so much in tribes, because as you know, at this time, yes, the 12 tribes didn't exist as, you know, a common entity, right? But you had people from different towns and different parts of the Jewish diaspora. So as they would actually gather for these special occasions, they're more likely to gather with people who come from similar regions. And it kind of makes sense because quite often it was about um, sharing certain things culturally and linguistically. So they'd gather at a specific area, right, in and around Jerusalem as approach feast day. So they didn't gather inside the city. What you need to take into account is when you think of Jerusalem, uh, many of us just may assume that we're just talking about the city, the sort of inside the, the enclosed walls, right? But I want you to imagine uh, what it's like um, when somebody said the city of London. 
when we say the city of London, those of us who are Londoners, live in London, we're thinking of the financial square mile, right? Exactly, yeah, right. But we generally don't live or even work in the city of London. We live in greater London. Very similar. You had like the city of Jerusalem, but then you had greater Jerusalem. So the people would gather on and around in greater Jerusalem. Right? So it's important to understand that. So they would camp out in and around outside in greater Jerusalem. The south end of the Mount of Olives, which is overlooking Jerusalem, had for years been the camping grounds of people from Galilee. And these were, we need to understand a little bit about the Galileans, these were the unsophisticated and common people of the area where Jesus spent most of his time, performed most of his miracles, and delivered the Sermon on the Mount. And I have actually been privileged to have gone to Israel, gone to Jerusalem, and gone actually to Galilee, and saw the actual location where. It wasn't a high mountain that Jesus climbed up to, right, and looking down, right? It was just, I would say, maybe no more than about uh, 12 feet from the ground where he delivered the sermon to the Galileans, right? But because of the... Um, you know, elevated ground. That's why it's referred to as a mount. But it wasn't Jesus, you know, some of us might imagine as children that he stood on a great mountain and people were gathered. No, that is not how it was actually, right? But, yeah, these were the people that knew Jesus best, the Galileans. And this is where Jesus spent most of his time on earth. Eleven of the twelve disciples came from Galilee with the exception of one. Who do you think that one was? The obvious. Uh, come on. I asked this question in school once and they knew it straight away. <laughs> come on. Who was you think was the one who was not a Galilean of the 12? Judas. Judas. <laughs> exactly. And interesting. I don't want to go off track too. Right? But there was always a bit of tension between the Galileans and the people from Judea. And, but it shows the compassion and care of Jesus Right, eating some, I would say, the Bible doesn't record it in detail, but you can read between the lines sometimes, right? He, at times, perhaps had to be a bit protective to bound Judas, because the others perhaps always had some kind of prejudice or somewhat, you know, apprehension about Judas. And even right up to, right, the time when they had gathered for what we traditionally know as the Last Supper, you still saw Jesus, right, in some sense, true love, compassion, care, right, humanity, right, somewhat protect Judas. Because could you imagine, just for a moment, right, like some of us may have done, you know that man's going to betray me. Could you imagine Jesus saying that to the others and you being someone like Peter or someone like John or James who come from a very fiery background and says, yes, we know. Yes, you will thief the money. And no, you're going to betray a lot. Goodness. But even at the time, right, when Jesus gave him his final offer, so to speak, and says, are you still going to go ahead with what's in your heart? And gave him bread, right? And then Jesus said it in such a subtle and such a way that the others didn't even know. And said, go off. And they thought he was going off to perhaps on some errand, but no. Jesus said, you've made your choice, right? Go ahead. But there it was. It just shows who Jesus is, right? Where he tells them to love their enemies, love those, right? There he was. Judas had decided he would become an enemy of Jesus, but Jesus still loved them because the Bible said it. Jesus still referred to him as a friend, right? Even there, protecting him. You know, it's amazing, right? Yeah. So, as I said, Judas was the one who came from a different region. He actually came from Judea. And what do we know about the Galileans? Right? The command to love your enemies was first given to the Galileans from the Sermon on the Mount. Luke chapter 6, verse 27, 28. But I say to you who hear, love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. 
Pray for those who abuse you. Wow. No other man has ever spoken like this. Even if you don't even accept and stand, right, the supernatural aspect to Christ. But just look at him in terms of his teaching. Right? I've said this to um, uh, a number of people who hold separate belief. Right? When we start looking at the teachings and you know, claims of other religious. I says, who else has ever said something that surpasses this? Right? Love your enemies. Pray for those. And bless those who curse you. Pray for those who abuse you. Wow. It takes us, only God alone can change your hearts to enable us to do that. But only Jesus, right, could have said this. Right? With full conviction. There is he loved his enemy. Right? So, the command to love your enemies was first given to the Galileans. And this command may have been given to them following a gruesome incident in Galilee. Luke chapter 13, verse 1. There were some present at that very time who told him about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. Now, whether it happened before or after the Sermon on the Mount, or after the command to love your enemies, we're not certain. But we do know that there was no love loss between the Galileans and Pilate. The Galileans knew Jesus best. On several occasions, they had tried to make him a king. John chapter 6, verse 15. Perceiving then that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. Right? So there is, they tried, they saw, right? Yeah. That there was something very special that he was sent by God. But, yeah, it wasn't in God's plan for him to be acknowledged as king. And he is, and he was a king, but not. In the sense that they wanted a king. They wanted a king very much like in the lineage that had took place under the whole covenant. The Galileans, these were the ordinary people, or dare I say use the word, the ghetto people of the time with whom Jesus was popular. In the city of Jerusalem, on the other hand, were the wealthy and superficially religious leaders. Jesus had antagonized them by referring to the scribes and Pharisees as hypocrites. Also among them were the Sadducees who had long been plotting his downfall. In order to preserve their wealth and lifestyle, they had conspired with the conquering Romans. In doing so, they compromised their faith. They thought they had much to lose if they displeased their Roman overlords. These men-pleasing priests and scribes plotted the murder of Jesus. I know some people um, are sometimes uncomfortable when you talk about Jesus being murdered, but in our judicial and in our legal understanding, right, Jesus was murdered. Yeah. yeah. Sounds a little bit, yes, yeah, unpalatable, but he was. He was murdered. So these, you know, as I said, the religious leaders, they're supposed to be the people, right, who set and exemplified the standards of God. But yet, they turn out to be anything but representative of the true religion of God. So they plotted his murder. Whereas the poor Galileans had nothing to lose. The city dwellers would do anything to placate the Romans in order to continue to prosper. To them, only wealth and political influence mattered. Does that sound familiar? Right. As Solomon says, there's nothing new under the sun. <laughs> yeah. In their eyes, Jesus was expendable. Beside, in their eyes, of the religious leaders, he was a threat to their religious, political, and economic stranglehold 
over the people and certainly not the Messiah. Going back now to when Jesus is coming in to the city. Notice that there were two distinct groups. Mark chapter 11, verse 9. Please, could you just have that up again? Yeah, just, yeah, just verse 11. Right. Just verse 11. Can I see? Yeah, one more. Verse 9. Right, okay. Right. And those who went before and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Right. Yeah. From a distance from the event, we are all from a distance, you know, historically we are from a distance from the event. Yeah. We commonly tend to merge these two crowds into one and, you know, assume it was the same people who shouted Hosanna, also cried crucify him several days later. Not quite. It was the jubilant Galileans who mainly shouted Hosanna and the aristocratic, superficial religious hypocrites of Jerusalem who wanted to appease the Romans who later cru cried crucify him. So we need to get that understanding. Yes, right. The Galileans tended to be, you know, yeah, very much, right? Always, yeah, somewhat. I line with Jesus, but you find the religious leaders were, where the power, the, uh, the power base of existed, right? They wanted to get Jesus, so they were the ones who very much, right, were behind, you know, demanding for him to be crucified. Pilate was, right, as we know, as we will go on to look at the story, right, was more interested to somehow, right, yeah, do the least he needed to do, right, to. Um, more or less appease the crowd. But the religious leaders who held, as we know, the greatest influence in right, the society demanded not for him just to be killed, but for him to be crucified. And just to remind us all, why they demanded for him to be crucified was they not only wanted him Right to be killed, to be put to death. They also wanted him to be humiliated. They wanted him to suffer. Right. So they were the ones who orchestrated the whole kind of um, you know response or reaction to Jesus and shouting for him to be crucified, demanding that he be crucified. The religious leaders. However, the question for you and me at this moment, at this juncture, is yeah, do we identify with those who shout Hosanna? Right? Or do we identify with those who shout crucify him? And how does this actually relate to us today? Right? What does our lifestyle say? Right? Does our lifestyle put Jesus to shame? Or does our lifestyle glorify him? So that's the question each one have to ask, each one of us have to ask ourselves, right? Does our lifestyle put him to shame or does it glorify him? So just moving on now, just want to share yeah, five brief lessons that we can learn from Palm Sunday. The first point, timing. Timing is critical. Yeah, you have an hourglass, right? Timing is critical to everything we do. Doing the right thing at the right time is important. Having spent the best part of um, 40 years working with teenagers, I've never known another group who seems to struggle with um, time management as teenagers. Uh, just in, you know, none of my children are teenagers, so I can speak more. They're at liberty. <laughs> right? But, my goodness, if you... I'd have been a parent of teenagers, right? Just trying to rely on them to just empty the bins before the dustman come, to wash up the dishes, right? And don't leave it until such a time. Empty, you know, um, empty the washing machine. Don't leave your clothes in. Oh, my. 
that really exhausts your patience as a parent. Anybody can relate to that? <laughs> but I have to sort of eat humble pie because there was a bit of watching a double standard because I was once complaining to my stepmom and my stepmom is always very honest and direct with people. And she said, but you used to do the same thing. So I said, oh, oh okay. So it's something, the teenage thing, right. Anyway, but back to this lesson. Yeah. Timing is critical. Timing is important. And we shouldn't grow weary in becoming discouraged in waiting in God's timing in our lives. His clock is never wrong. As this event, you know, triumphant entry, Jerusalem illustrates. Passover was a celebration commemorating the deliverance of the Jews from Egyptian captivity. It always occurred on the 15th of the Jewish month of Nisan. That's about mid-April for us. All who lived within 20 miles of Jerusalem were required to attend. Jews from all over the diaspora would eagerly gather for this major event. As excitement grew with the approach of Passover, extensive preparation preceded it. Roads were repaired, tombs were whitewashed, and children were rehearsed in the significance of the event. The prophet Daniel foretold when this momentous event would occur. Daniel said it would be 1,703, 880 days until it happened. Daniel chapter 9, verse 24, 26, please. Seventy weeks are decreed about your people and your holy city to finish the transgression, to put an end to sin, and to atone for iniquity to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal both vision and prophet, and to anoint a most holy place. Know therefore and understand that from the going out of the word to restore and build Jerusalem to the coming of an anointed one, a prince there shall be seven weeks, then for 62 weeks it shall be built again, with squares and mouths, but in a troubled time. And after the 62 weeks, an anointed one shall be cut off and shall have nothing. And the people of the prince who is to come shall destroy the city. Right. If you want to impact the ox, Brother Richard or Pastor Iggy, yeah. Brother Richard, you know, elders, they can impact. But that, in essence, was Daniel yeah, prophesying right, what was going to happen on that day. All right that the Messiah, Jesus, would enter Jerusalem on that day. So Jesus went to Bethany for six days before Passover, right, just as it was ordained, and entered Jerusalem the next day, which was April the 6th, the year 3232. John 12, verse 1, please. Six days before the Passover, Jesus therefore came to Bethany, where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. So it's all happening in God's, right, perfect timing, right? And in this act, the Father was further validating Jesus as the Messiah. God the Father wanted God the Son to be well identified and his visit to earth. Second point. Yeah. Point number two, please. Can I have uh, the image? <laughs> right. Okay. Yeah, back to our donkey. In any project, it is important to have the right resources. Right. Can I have the time, timing right? Well, you need to also have the right resources. Right. Sure, we're all familiar with that in our workplace or in our day-to-day -day living. Right. Jesus needed a donkey. Centuries earlier, the prophet Zechariah said the Messiah would enter Jerusalem riding on a donkey. All those along the route he was to ride had learned in infancy and repeated often the prophet Zechariah. 
Someone, could you turn for me? Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he. Humble and mounted on a donkey and a coat, the foal of a donkey. So there is a prophecy that they all knew. And now they're actually with their very eyes witnessing unfolding before them. Jesus knew where the resources he needed were. One was in the possession of an unidentified, unnamed disciple. He not only, Jesus not only had 12 disciples, he had many more disciples. It wasn't just 12. Jesus had many more. It's just that those that 12 were the ones who spent much more time with him and much more recorded. But he had many more followers and disciples. And the owner of the donkey was evidently one. A disciple is a learner or a follower. Every Christian is in reality a disciple. Every Christian in reality is a disciple. Every true follower of the Lord and supporter of his cause is needed. Every one of us have been called, not just saved, but called and saved to serve. We are called, we are saved to serve. Right? Not to just sit back right, and just wait right, for the time when the Lord calls us home. We are called to serve. Our Lord calls us to pray, to study, right, to give guidance, and, and financially support his cause. These things we should do willingly, eagerly, spontaneously, and without thought of recognition or promotion. You know, recently I went to my parents' um, church to a funeral, Sister Betty. And um, what was remarkable, and I'll share briefly about Sister Betty and Dr. Brown. Both Sister Betty and Dr. Brown, who have now passed, sis, I went to Sister Betty's funeral um, two Tuesdays ago. And what was amazing about both Sister Betty and Dr. Brown was this. They both started attending Denmark Place Baptist Church just there um, at, um, you know, the start of Colabo Lane at the Campbell End. When they were teenagers, Sister Betty was responsible for getting the church decorations ready on Sunday. Dr. Brown was in charge of maintenance. Both Sister Betty and Dr. Brown, right, started in their respective roles in the church as teenagers before they became qualified professionals. Sister Betty became yeah, a very distinguished accountant and Dr. Brown, yeah, a medical doctor and in fact a GP. But yet throughout, throughout their time as professionals, they still continued in those respective roles. And even after they retired, Sister Betty in her um, 60s or 70s, and Dr. Brown said, they still continued in that role. And uh, I once asked him, oh, but surely you, the Lord was a call. He said, no, this is what the Lord called me to serve in this capacity. Right? Yeah. So it started before they entered their, right? Yeah. Their to their profession. And it continued after. And I thought, who else? Right? But the Spirit of God could have given them that, you know, sense of dedication, that commitment that dedication to serve right throughout from their youth right into right retirement right so it just shows you that you know god is able <laughs> yeah yeah though jesus had the authority to command it yeah yeah he could have easily command that the donkey be brought to him sexually because he is the lord he is the creator Right? He has ultimate authority. But he humbly gave the opportunity to the provider to refuse. He also had the integrity to make his request through his disciples. 
And he had the honesty and justice to return it. Right? So Jesus quite often lived by what he taught. <laughs> Question for you and me. How are we told him what the master needs of us? Are some of the resources needed by his church being held by you and me? Are you that resource? Though the ages, throughout the ages, there have been those who have delighted to serve a meaningful, though menial role in his kingdom. God has always had those of us who delight to be the equivalent of his donkey. That is the means by which he achieved his purpose. When our beloved Lord needed someone to reform the church, he chose the rough, unpolished son of a miner, Martin Luther, as his donkey. When he needed a donkey to arouse the Orthodox Church of England, he called from the, a pub in Gloucester, George Whitfield. Neither Luther nor Whitfield right, became perfect disciples. Luther had some very deep-set anti-Semitic views, and Whitfield was very instrumental in supporting slavery in the Americas. Yet in spite of their imperfections, both Luther and Whitfield were honored to be likened to the donkey that bore Jesus into Jerusalem that day. So in spite of our perfections, in spite of your imperfections, my imperfections, are we also willing to be the equivalent of the donkey, fulfilling the purpose of Jesus? Third point, the purpose for his coming. Jesus came to cleanse. If any of you remember, I'm sure most of you don't, <laughs> Yeah, remember my New Year's Day's message. I shared the story of Judah Maccabees and the restoration of the temple. In 175 BC, Antiochus Epiphanes conquered Jerusalem. He sacrificed pigs on the holy altar and turned the sacred temple into a brothel. Three years later, Judah Maccabee recaptured Jerusalem and physically cleansed the temple. Now Jesus came to the temple to cleanse it spiritually from hypocritical defilement. If you recall, right, just briefly, when Jesus, after he had gone into Jerusalem, entered, where did he go? To the temple. And what did he find? Religious leaders had turned the temple, right, into a place of extortion, Right, don't have time to unpack it, but basically, the people coming in from the diaspora are coming into Jerusalem to actually um, ensure that there was animal you know, to be more or less administered for right the Passover sacrifice. Right, they would quite often poor, especially if you're from Galilee. Right? could only afford right, a low-priced animal. So it would be like maybe going to somewhere like, and, 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 and don't quote me outside Iceland, pick up right, a cheap uh, chicken. Well, they could only afford quite often, most of them, right, the cheapest of animals. They would bring this to the temple, and what the religious leaders would do, right, they had a racket set up whereby they would almost invariably reject what the people have brought and find some fault, find some blemish with the animal and reject it and say, that's not good enough, right? But if you want now something, you have to buy from us or buy from those that they had actually set up to do it. That would have invariably cost much more money, right? So the people ended up having to borrow money either from them or from one of their associates, to afford the sacrifice. Furthermore, right, the only money they could use to purchase the sacrifice were the temple currency. I think it was shekel. Many of these people are coming from right, other parts of the diaspora with foreign currency. 
So they had to change it into local currency before they could purchase the animal, right? Money changers, they're making a very thriving business, right? Would charge huge commission, right? Can you talk about And these are people exploiting people of their own ethnicity, their own, right, Jew, fellow Jews, right? It wasn't Gentile, it was their own fellow Jews, right? When Jesus came into the temple, right, Right. This angered him, seeing this open, very bare face, right? Extortion happening. That's why he said, right? Yeah. My house shall be called a house of prayer, but you have made it into a den of thieves. Right? And you know what happened? Show, uh, you know, show them out at the temple and then call in two worshippers, etc. So that was what was happening. And so, as I said, just hold for that point that when Antiochus came in, yes, there was a Gentile ruler, um, when Antiochus Epiphanes, who was, had actually defiled the temple by sacrificing pigs, right? But now, the religious leaders, the Jewish leaders, right, was using the temple, right, to line their pockets. Kind of sound a bit familiar in some places, in certain ministries, doesn't it? Using God's name to line their pockets, right? So if God never changed, Jesus never changed, and he was angry with the money changes then, do you not think he's still angry for these people? Right, okay, <laughs> say no more, right? Now you understood why they hated and despised Jesus and had to get rid of him, right? There he was. Okay. So there needed to have been a spiritual cleansing, right? But there needs also to be a spiritual cleansing in us. And only Jesus alone, right, can actually cleanse us from our sins, right, and restore that joyous relationship, right, with God. The fourth point, yeah, moving on. He came to forgive, right? One writer says, forgiveness is the highest, the highest form of love. We incline to kind of, a, I, I agree with him. God showed how much he loved us by forgiving us, right? We show others how much we love them. We show God how much we love them by forgiving others also, right? Yeah, forgive us our trespasses as we forgive them who trespass against us, right? That, yeah, is the heart of love, willing to forgive. So Jesus came to forgive, right? Because that is a highest form of expression of love as we understood in, by certain people. The Greek word for Lord is kudos. It was used in various ways because Jesus was called King and Lord. But, and the Greek word is kudos. It was used, as I said, in a number of ways. Right? In which of these ways is it used by you and me? It was used as a title of reverence, of respect. It was used of one who is in charge. Luke, the Gospel of Luke, refers to an individual who was the Lord of the vineyard, meaning he was the master in charge of the vineyard. It was used of a deity. The Romans mistakenly thought Caesar was divine and called him Curious Caesar. But the question for you and me, is Jesus the one, right, who is Lord and is revered as such in the way we live? So when we say Lord, Lord, is it about how we live, or our relationship with him? Or is it just, you know, yeah, words that has no meaning in our lives? Right? Fifth point, last point. He came to fulfill his mission. It was now time to bring to a climax his reason for coming to earth. He who could have ridden the wind, right? The one who stilled the wind, yeah? Rode a donkey. He who could have summoned the angels chose a donkey. Scripture says all things were created by him and for him. Yet he borrowed, 
right? A donkey. Jesus didn't come riding a high-spirited white stallion, but on a colt, an animal associated with peace. The cloak he wore symbolized his kingship. Right? So, yes, he still had to remind them that he was king, and they needed to be reminded that he was king. He is king. In regard to what the people were waving in their hands, Matthew, Mark, and John each use a different word for branches. Matthew speaks of young branches of sh or shoots. Mark refers to a mass of straw. John speaks of palm branches. Each was right. All three were used. Each writer simply mentions the one that stood out to him. This shows that there was no collaboration, right, or duplicity in their writing. Each wrote from his own viewpoint. I'm sure some of you have come across people who say, oh, the Bible contradicts itself, the Bible is not, because this one says, hey, like for instance, when Jesus rose, you know, one said, oh, right, there was one angel, then another, it says two angels. That person is writing as they saw it there and then. So it is still, right, yeah, evidence of the truth. Right? Yeah, so it's not a contradiction. It's just what they saw, they're writing. And it is to actually, in some sense, had credibility that these people did not, right, meet up. The, you know, the gospel writers didn't meet and collaborated and said, okay, right, uh, um, let us make sure everything we say is exactly the same. No, no, no. The fact that there was this variant shows that they wrote independently of each other. Years before this, years before, this was the means the people used to greet Judah Maccabee when he liberated the city. Yes, yeah, so the wavering of the branch was something that date back to when Judah Maccabee had liberated the temple from Antiochus Epiphanes. Right. Yeah. On this occasion, they were waving again to hail Jesus as a liberator. As Jesus entered Jerusalem, the exuberant and impetuous crowd of common people on the Mount of Olive shouted, Hosanna! Matthew 21, verse 9, please. And the crowds that went before him and that followed him were shouting, Hosanna to the Son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And this means, let the angels... Let the angels, let even the angels in the highest height of, heights of heaven cry unto God, save now. In that shouting crowd were persons who hold Jesus' gratitude for recovering their sight, strengthening their limbs, restoring their sanity, and healing their bodies. There was even one man named Jude Lazarus who had his life restored from the grave. We, like them, are eternally indebted to Jesus. And so we should not hesitate in joining them in praising him. Right? The full measure of what Jesus has done, we can't fully comprehend. And if we live... 20 eternities, that won't be long enough, right, to express our gratitude that, that he deserved. As Jesus approached the city, he descended from the Mount of Olives into the Kedron Valley and started his approach through the eastern gate of Jerusalem. It would be there that he would later encounter the hostile crowd intent on appeasing the Romans, shouting, crucify him. In conclusion, as we come to the end now, give God thanks. Question for you and me, as I've asked before, with which crowd do you identify? I don't mean which crowd you identify with in your more spiritual moments. On a day-to-day -day basis, which crowd does your lifestyle, my lifestyle, reflect? Which crowd 
your lifestyle and mine identify with. Consider the fierce reactions to Jesus. A. Some wanted to use him. The zealots wanted him to be their military liberator. B. Some wanted to ignore him. The Romans felt superior to this lowly Nazarene whom they sought to ignore. C. Some wanted to obey him. The owner of the donkey eagerly wanted to obey. D. Some wanted to worship him. They knew he had resurrected Lazarus. John 12, verse 17 to 18. The crowd that had been with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to be a witness. The reason why the crowd went to meet him was that they had heard he had done this sign. The eventful morning of his entry into Jerusalem was a Sunday. On this day, will you, as Sunday is today, Palm Sunday, on this day, will you allow him to be the triumphant Lord in your life? He comes in only by special invitation. He doesn't impose himself on anyone. Right? Invite us all. Right, to be Lord in our lives, but only if we are willing right, to invite him. The crowd reaction of that day is not so different from the various responses of today. John Mark, in his gospel, makes an interesting observation regarding Christ's immediate followers. Someone turn for me, please. Yeah, Mark 10, 32. Thank you. Anticipated me well. And they were on the road going up to Jerusalem. And Jesus was walking ahead of them. And they were amazed. And those who followed were afraid. And taking the 12 again, he began to tell them that was to happen. When Jesus goes before you, there's no need to be afraid. Today, as we know, it's still the season, or at this moment, still the season of Ramadan, right, around the world, by, you know, honored by Muslims, right? Many Christians in Muslim-majority countries, it's a very testing time. It's a very fearful time. Pray for them. Because in many places, the way in which they can differentiate between those who are Christians from those, right, who are of the Islamic faith is that Christians do not fast. And as a result, they then became targets for their Muslim neighbors. So it's a very testing time. Right? But give God thanks for giving them the courage in spite of right, the opposition they're up against. Right? At this time. So be in prayer for them. So when Jesus goes before, there's no need to be afraid. Right. Yeah, these followers, they were not intimidated by their fear. They followed. Courage is not the absence of fear. It is doing what you know is right in spite of your fear. Is fear in any form holding you back in your response to Christ? If so, show faith in him and express courage by reacting with the crowd that shouted, Hosanna. Following Christ involves trusting him completely in spite of our fears, doubts, struggles, weaknesses, and setbacks. It is the most challenging thing that anyone, any human could ever encounter is to be a follower of Jesus Christ. When I was 15, I remember, right, pastor who was counseling myself and some young people, he said, be under no misapprehension in becoming a Christian. You're not going to find anything more challenging in your life, no matter how long you live. That still remains the same today. Right? 
Some of us, I'm sure, there's times when right, somebody has upset us and we just got to bite our tongue just for the Lord's sake, and we know it. It's hard to do, but, right? Sometimes people do things or things we're tempted to do things, and boy, you need that grace, right? Yeah, from God, right? Not to succumb. That is not easy by any stretch of the imagination, but that's the cost of following Christ. But it's more than worth it, right? So following Christ involves trusting him completely in spite of our fears, doubts, struggles, weaknesses, and setbacks. Palm Sunday, this Palm Sunday, right? Let our hearts and minds be set on, just as the crowd, to be praising and glorifying. We are privileged, more privileged than them in a sense, right? They saw Jesus on his way to Calvary. We saw G- we see Jesus. We look back in retrospect. We celebrate Jesus, right? Leaving the tomb. So yes, we can shout Hosanna as he's the king coming in. Yeah? But we can also shout Hosanna as he now reigns supreme. King of kings, Lord of lords. So let that be our triumphant cry on Palm Sunday. Amen? Amen. Amen. Let us just give God thanks. Almighty God, it's such a wonderful blessing to once again hear those reassuring word that Jesus is, has risen. Jesus reigns supreme. And even as much as you have millions of followers right across the globe, right throughout time, but yet, Jesus, you are able to meet each one of us personally. And so, Lord, on this Palm Sunday, let us be reminded of why you came. You came for us personally. You came for us individually. And wherever we are at this moment, on our Christian journey, or our journey to the cross, I just pray, Lord, that just as our youth went on that lowly donkey that symbolized that you are the Prince of Peace, that you will greet us again with your peace, that we will not be afraid, we will not be troubled, we will not be consumed by our doubts, our guilt, right? our sense of feeling that we have failed you. How you are able to restore us, Lord, wherever we are, whatever situation we are in. Just as how you took Peter, who failed you so many times, but yet Peter went on to be given that wonderful privilege of standing up there in Jerusalem and announcing that you are Lord and King, you are the Savior. And so, Lord, comfort our hearts. Restore anyone that at this time is feeling discouraged, disheartened, uncertain, anxious, whatever they're going through, Lord. Just remind them, remind us that you are still there with open arms, ready to receive the repentant sinner. And so, Lord, we give you thanks. May everyone spend the rest of the day somewhere reflecting on what Palm Sunday was about. And this week as we go ahead, which is traditionally called Holy Week, that is not just what happened in days, but also what you are able to do in our lives on a daily basis. 
and help us to keep our eyes fixed on the cross because that's where our salvation was complete. And so, Lord, be with us and depart us in your peace. Not the peace the world gives, but your peace, Jesus. Enable us to, as we fellowship and as we leave for our separate journeys, whether to home or elsewhere, that we live in your peace and assurance. As we put this before you, Lord Jesus, as you intercede for us to the Father. Amen. Amen. And thanks. Join us next time for more of God's truth to transform your reality.